John, welcome to the Crowd Money Cast. It's great to have you with us. Hey, it's good to be here. So, John, I think a great place to start off with is, frankly, in the very beginning. Um, I would love to know what the original idea behind Predict It was when you launched the platform back in 2014. Was there a particular inspiration behind the platform? Was it the Iowa electric markets? Was it the research coming out of UPenn, IARPA, and others? I think it would just be great for us to know, you know, what was the story behind the platform, which we all call Predict It today? Sure. Actually, there was a much more tawdry origin story for Predicted, which has to do with uh, Intrade, which mm. was the, the, uh, the raucous wild, wild west of uh, original prediction markets it was run out of, out of Ireland. Uh, and they ran into trouble without, without uh, cheapening a great yarn uh, of uh, Intrade. Uh, it, they, ran, they, they ran into trouble with regulators and were eventually shut down, but not before uh, in-trade and the, and the potential to bet on political outcomes was brought to my attention by one of the investors in my company, who was an avid political junkie uh, and also a, a storied investor in the stock market. Um, he actually had created the the Dutch uh, had pioneered the use of Dutch auctions for bringing companies public, and had brought uh, companies public, many companies public himself. Uh, his name's Bill Hambricht, uh, and he he said, you know, you got to take a look at this at this um, in trade thing because it's really interesting. They're very accurate in their how these markets forecast future events when they're political or non-political markets are, you know, he's a, he's a believer in my markets as I have become. And as many people are that markets are very uh, generally, they're not perfect, but, but they're generally very good forecasting mechanisms for future events. And it doesn't have to be the price of soybeans. It can be political events as well. We'll get into that. I hope clay in the conversation, but that was the genesis of Predicted. And so we looked at Intrade. They were being shut down shortly after that. This is in 2012. And there was sort of a crash and burn there. But uh, we started, uh, I, I was and am the founder, co-founder of a, a, a political technology company. And, and one of the inspirations for this conversation and for, for Predicted was polling is broken. And it was broken then. It was getting more and more broken. Uh, it was expensive. It was out of date as soon as the poll was conducted. It asks people, what do you want to have happen rather than what do you think will happen? And so it all depends on the sample that you pick. And um, it, it, with the advent of cell phones, for instance, it vastly complicates the process of picking a, a truly random sample. Um, and the, the, the fact that you don't really know from an area code where somebody is anymore from a three-digit prefix. It has no relation to what your sample is. And, and our company, my company, Aristotle, was in the business of providing polling samples from registered voter rolls to people doing either picking a jury roll if it was a, it was a courthouse or picking a polling sample if you were a, a public opinion pollster. And it was bedeviled by all these problems. So polling was broken. The polls were less accurate. They were out of date. And the, the thought was perhaps markets could in some way augment or replace public opinion polling 
for some of the forecasting. Now, it, they've turned out to do way more than that. And that's what we'll talk about uh, today. But that was the genesis. We went to New Zealand, which I get a question on. How does New Zealand factor into this? We looked for a, uh, a prediction market or a market forecasting market, event contracts market, in other words, that was already in existence. And New Zealand, the university there, Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, had been running a prediction market for about seven, I think it was seven or eight years before that point. And it was a good one. And they were, they had uh, traders from around the world, but they were finding that the compliance and the know your customer and the anti-money, all the rest of it was becoming too burdensome for the university. And so we teamed with Victoria and the first order of business was to get, because we weren't gonna do it if it couldn't be done illegally. If it couldn't be done illegally, we weren't, that wasn't of interest to us. So what we did was we went to, uh, Victoria went to the Commodities Future Trading Commission, the CFTC, which is a regulatory body in the United States and said, we want to create a prediction market like Iowa electronic markets, with which the CFTC had approved 30 years earlier. And that was the genesis of predicting. How has that idea, you know, evolved over the seven, seven and a half years that predict it's been out? You know, you guys launched with political and economic markets, and that is still the primary focus of the platform. And that ethos that you mentioned still seems to be holding within the company, but it's also been, you know, nearly a decade. And so in what ways has Predicted evolved over these last seven years? And and in, in what ways has it uh, sort of stayed the same? Well, so part of our part of our uh, charter is is research purposes, right? There's a there's there's legitimate intense interest in why markets are as accurate as they as they are, and sometimes not accurate in forecasting the future. And so, true to the the genesis of this, uh, there are more than a hundred. I think it's 110 or 12 university researchers who are focused on taking the anonymized aggregated trading data and understanding how information, for instance, flows into the markets. What makes for a super forecaster? Why are our are markets sometimes wrong? So there's a lot of very interesting research. I'm gonna send you some after this, uh, after we talk. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research being done on the, on the nature of markets, the nature of traders, how information flows, forecasting like i mean think about what, what we're doing here it's kind of amazing it's it's uh what these traders are doing is they are attempting to tell the future they're looking into a crystal ball and they're trying to or pulling back the curtain let's use that analogy they're pulling back the curtain a little bit to try to see uh into the future not with 2020 vision but rather with some greater accuracy than pundits and pollsters and others in terms of forecasting what's going to happen. And so we're, we're, that's, what, that's what these traders do each and every minute of every day as they put their money where their mouth is. And it's not a lot of money individually, but it certainly adds up. And so what they do is they make these $1 winner-take-all contract bets up to $850 position limit in any of these contracts. We've got about 140 different markets currently running. And in the aggregate, 
they're setting the price, which is the equivalent of the odds from 1% to 100% that something's going to happen or not happen. And we are just putting somebody who thinks something's going to happen together with somebody who doesn't think that thing is going to happen. And that's where the price is set. And that's why it's that's why these prices are so are so interesting to watch. It's fascinating. You just you you look at how the pricing on some of these markets fluctuates, uh, and and then where it ends up. And and that's we'll talk about that next. Um, so you spoke about in trade, and obviously one of the founders of in trade, Ron Bernstein, went on to work with the Forecast Foundation that developed Augur. You know, think going back to sort of the conception of predict it. Um, you know, was there any thinking behind uh, sort of using fiat currency versus um, some other sort of, you know, altcoin or cryptocurrency? Um, and do you think that has any uh, sort of impact on, on the future development of, of predicted over the next few years? So, so Ron and I had more than one discussion, some conversation about the future of prediction markets, the way they might be funded. I mean, it, too many to, to remember at this point, but it went on for quite a while, even before Predicted was started, as I recall. Um, and, and we made the decision early, I'm saying we at Predicted made the decision early in the process that, that we were, because we needed to operate with, uh, with transparency for the regulators, um, that that might be a, a step too far. Um, that may not have been the right decision, but it was a decision we made at the time. And uh, in, in uh, you know, looking ahead, there are, it's clear that prediction markets are going to proliferate and some are going to use dollars and some are going to use francs and some are going to use crypto. Uh, and I don't, I don't pretend to be able to, to, to know which direction it's going to go in. Um, but there's a lot of experimentation being done. And Bernstein's one of the, you know, one of the, I don't know if he'd like being referred to this, but one of the, you know, founding fathers in this whole area um, and was in there in the trenches with, with uh, Intrade. So also, you know, on that line of Intrade, you know, uh, Predictit received its no letter action from the CFTC. And for those of you unaware, the CFTC um, shut down Intrade. Um, but Predictit received a no action letter from the CFTC in part due to the research hypothesis that prediction markets would generate more accurate foresight than other means of telling the future, like election polling. Um, have you guys assessed the accuracy of the market prices on Predictit relative to what polling might inform you? Do you know what Predictit's Briar score is? And are you guys also able to determine who the super traders uh, on Predictit are, the, the, the super forecasters equivalent on your prediction market? And are you guys able to derive even better foresight by um, aggregating just the information that those people are inputting? So that's a, that's a great question. It's a complex question because there are a couple of different things you were asking me. And, and some of the answers, I, is, is, I don't know. Um, we we are we are able to obviously and others also external to predict that are able to compare the accuracy of predicted forecasts uh, and and odds to polling. And if you look at it over time, this is a I'll, I'll do this in layman's terms, and I'll get to the Briar score question in just a minute. But if you do this over time, 
it's not just a question of who's got the right odds on the day that the event happens. It's if you back it off, as with the Breyer score, you back it off a week or a month or six months or a year, what's more accurate? Now, polling is virtually worthless, as we can, can agree, when it comes to predicting a year in advance who's going to be the Democratic nominee, let alone who's going to win the general election. Okay, forget about it. it it's helpful for your, if you're fundraising and you're running a presidential campaign and you can crank out a poll that shows that you are the inevitable next president of the United States. But the fact of the matter is, if you're going to believe that, uh, you know, maybe you are the one who should be stroking the check for the, for, at the fundraiser. But that's not where polling is strong. Polling is actually very good. I'll give a little plug for poll, my polling friends. Polling is very good for understanding why people feel the way they do. Focus groups, for instance, are very valuable if conducted properly in understanding the sort of decision-making process that people go through and some of the underlying emotional or intellectual reasons why they hold certain beliefs or want certain things to happen. Very poor at predicting future outcomes, especially when you're far in advance. Markets are generally better at that through this process of price discovery, because the price that gets assigned on a once the use predicted as an example on a $1 winner take all contract, but it can be oil prices, it can be pork bellies, it can be soybeans, it can be the, you know, the number of Teslas that are going to be sold as an economic indicator. Markets are, are better at, at translating billions of, assimilating billions of pieces of information and translating that into prices and risk and what that makes, what that, when you get that, that's odds. And so that's what markets are very good at distilling very efficiently. Not always accurate, I'll keep telling you that, but the fact is these markets are pretty damn good at doing that. And they're better, the farther are you have from the event, because it's hard to see a year in advance as to what's gonna happen. You know, a, a year in politics is a lifetime and anything can happen. And there's no real way to know who's gonna be the nominee or get elected president, you can speculate on this, but if you have a lot of relatively uh, engaged people who are distilling all this information and distilling that down to odds, again, you know, we're if something has the odds of, you know, if it's a 25% odds that something's gonna happen, well, that means that 25% of the time that thing is supposed to happen. So the, the fact of the matter is with, with uh, a market like predicted, you are more likely to get tangible, actionable information further away from the event. Now, to your question about, I know this is a long answer to your question, but the question about the Breyer scores. We've done analysis comparing it to, for instance, on polling, 538, for instance, and we compare very favorably um, in, the, in the analysis against polling or aggregates of polls for forecasting future events. That's the case in 2018 and 2020, et cetera. The, in case of Breyer scores, we've done an analytics of Breyer scores. I'm going to send you, we're going to run new Breyer scores for you uh, this week, and we'll get you the results on that so you can take a look at it. So, you know, on that point, I'm really interested because it's not like bettors on predict it don't look at polling, and it's not like polling isn't um, an insubstantial part of their forecast, and yet they have this better foresight. 
Um, do you have any hypotheses for why this might be the case? Is it that they're inputting a lot of esoteric factors that poll-based models don't? Is it just sort of having this human supervisor over that polling data and being able to make sort of fine adjustments based on its findings that you can't really do in traditional poll-based models? Uh, I think it's just really curious that this question, I'm curious if you have any any thoughts about this. So Clay, here's, yeah, I thought a lot about it. We have these, we have some, some, some people who are spending their, devoting their careers to figuring this out. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, uh, some of these people are are, are uh, you know I talked to I talked to these researchers and professors and 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 just to try to get a sense of what they're doing and I you know I, um, everybody's not going to be right but uh, it's it's it'll be really interesting and that's one of the, the you know the more than three hundred citations I think of predicted literature now um, and there's the, these um, there are a couple of things that are that are becoming pretty evident from from the research. I want to talk about engagement in just a minute, in terms of what the two, how it functions to engage people in this process of trying to figure out what's going to happen and make a little money at the same time. I notice in my own case that when I have a little bit of skin in the game, it clears my head, and I think more clearly. As to, I, I focus more on discounting a lot of the noise. There's a, a fashionable new term called fake news and discounting the fake news that's out there and focusing on what, what, uh, what the data is showing. And so, yeah, they, they, they consume these polls, but they consume other, other factors. And one of the things that I think is a hallmark of the best forecasters, let's call them most consistently accurate forecasters, is they're able to remove the emotion from it and and concentrate on the on the information itself. And there's a lot of, you know, you uh, I don't know if you've if you've spent any time with on the comment boards on predicted. We had more than a million comments on a market some time ago. And it's a lively, uh, raucous discussion. Very lively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's. If you if you tap into that for a little bit, is if you can stand it, it's it's actually really interesting because there's a lot of spinning and counter spinning and and uh, bluffing and a lot of that stuff goes on. But there's also some really interesting insights you can pick up from some of these traders who are in there comparing notes, for instance. So. Um, I don't know the reason why these markets are as accurate as they are. I suspect it's not one single reason, um, but I also think it has to do with the fact that you've got a lot of engaged people uh, dispassionately looking at the numbers, which you don't get when you tune into CNN or Fox, right? So quickly before we go on, you know, obviously making money is great. Um, but I think the real value of prediction markets, as we've touched on, uh, is sort of producing valuable information and using it to make decisions. Um, you know, you may not be able to answer this, so feel free not to. But to your knowledge, are politicians using these prediction markets the same way that they might use polls in their uh, war rooms to make decisions about how to move forward with the campaign? Um, you know, how have people been using this information? Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, people who are, you know, reporters rely on on uh, 
on uh, predict it uh, because look, I mean, if you go, if you, when you tune in to CNBC in the morning, <clears throat> you know, it, it's not an infrequent occurrence for them to put up the Jerome Powell market, for instance, that was, you know, they had the Jerome Powell market up on, on CNBC last week, uh, week and a half ago. Um, because the polling, I mean, who cares saying about who's going to be picked? Is, is Powell going to be renominated? I mean, what, you know, what special expertise do a thousand random people from around the country have with respect to whether or not the, the head of the Federal Reserve is going to be reappointed? On the other hand, if you have people who have money at stake uh, and are following, intensely following this, they're more likely to be, it doesn't have to be just money, but have some something at stake, they're much more likely to be dispassionate about what they think is going to happen. So one topic about forecasting and prediction markets that I'm really interested in is using the information from these platforms in the news media when talking about relevant questions. And it's something that we don't see enough of, in my opinion. Now, to their credit, we do see some news outlets um, quoting from prediction markets and platforms every once in a while. Uh, for instance, Axios wrote an article about what Predictit was saying uh, with respect to Jerome Powell's renomination. However, this seems to be a pretty thin adoption. You know, a few days after that Axios article came out, they wrote another article. Uh, they wrote another article about sort of inside perspectives within the Senate about whether Powell will be renominated, and the article was to the effect of it led some to believe that he would be renominated. But if you looked at Predictit or Kalshi or, or or Good Judgment Super Forecasters, they were all saying this is very likely to happen. It's not some to believe. And Axios had even written an article of uh a few days earlier talking about this information, but in this other article, they don't even make a reference to it. And, you know, we're dealing with with a lack of trust in terms of news media, and I really think having quantified forecasts is a way to help rebuild that trust, but we're just not there yet. Do you have any thoughts and perspectives in terms of how we further integrate the information from these different markets and platforms into our wider society? That's a that's a great question. So first of all, you, uh, why don't some not every media outlet blacks out prediction markets? Right? I told you CNBC had we have, we're on CNBC all the time. Uh, you know Reuters, AP, and others are are you know carry us as, as does Drudge and others. So so we're we, we don't feel like we're being blacked out, but it's some media outlets that I won't name. Uh, you know, there's a strong de department of polling services uh, and, and they take very seriously their, the, the processes by which they go about conducting public opinion polls to try to ascertain what the public opinion is. Ascertaining what public opinion is, is not necessarily the same thing as forecasting the future, right? Big difference. And so, um, I, you know, I would, I would say that, that there's some, you know, some news outlets that, that, uh, uh, look askance at, at, uh, at prediction markets, some consider it gambling, uh, as if that, <laughs> what difference does it make how you arrive <laughs> at forecasts if it's an accurate forecast, right? So I think, 
I think there's some I think there's some bias against certain in certain outlets. But you know what? At the end of, at the end of the day, if, if you're more accurate and you have a better track record, who cares? That's what that's why people consume so-called news, and that's that's where I think that's where this is going to end up. It's really valuable to say, you know, if you say Jerome Powell is an 80%, we talked about 80% chance of, of being renominated. Uh, that's a very different pro proposition. It's way more fact laden than saying, oh, it's a good chance Jerome Powell is going to be renominated, but there's also a good chance that he won't. What does that mean? It means nothing. It's provocative, but that's if you say 80% odds and you put down 80 cents and you get a buck if he's renominated, or you put down 20 cents and you're gonna get a buck if he's not, that means something. And it's a lot more reliable, I think, than than the old way of doing things. Everybody, you know, it's the old Washington way of saying, oh, everything has a 40% chance of odds of happening. What is that? What good does that do anybody? Odds. That means if it doesn't happen, you don't have egg on your face. And if it does happen, you have egg on your face. You get 40% odds. It's the beauty of vague verbiage. You can get away with anything. I have very reliable sources that tell me that. Okay, well, whatever. Speaking of vernacular and verbiage, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, what does it matter if somebody calls this gambling, if you end up at, you know, a certain forecast? Something we've been thinking a lot about is, you know, what is the right terminology to use around sort of the prediction market space? Um, predict it calls itself a prediction market. I was wondering, do you have thoughts on um, sort of terminology, syntax uh, in this area? Do you feel like prediction market is the best or most apt uh, term to use when referring to these platforms? Um, do you think that calling predict it, you know, a political gambling platform would uh, change anything? Prediction markets imply, I mean, what I like about it is, look, the most important thing here is it's predictive and it's a market. And it's hard to, when you start talking about forecasting, some people equate that with, you know, hocus pocus. When you talk about gambling, some people equate that with the track. And the, the you know, there's, there are strongly different opinions on gambling and what's between what you can do in the UK what you can do in the US and what you can do in Singapore. So th th their gambling is probably a way we, mm -hmm. a lot of us think about it, but it's really not about a game of chance, even though there are odds are baked into the process. This is really about more about forecasting, um, you know, and, and, and less about gambling. The fact of the matter is, the, the most important part of this is markets because the markets are what's operating here. And we are, in case you guys can't tell, and I can tell from, we are fervent believers in markets. And whether that's whether, how you choose a political leader, you want a transparent free market in which to choose your political direction you're gonna take, or it has to do with what you're gonna pay for a, a gallon of gas. And the same is true when it comes to the, the course of human events, future events, natural events, things like a pandemic, for instance. How valuable would it be to have known 
that schools, for parents to know that schools are gonna be closed for a year and a half. And if, if markets can, can shine a little bit of light in terms of future events, they are, they already are the greatest invention. So John, while we still have you here, I want to ask you one final question, which is on the nature of predict it with the CFTC and all that jazz. So just a, a quick little background for our listeners. Um, in the past, in the late 19th, early 20th century, betting on political outcomes was legal in the United States. And some of these markets, uh, particularly on presidential outcomes, attracted more volume than stock and bond trading um, on given days. However, in the latter 20th and into the 21st century, this has been severely curbed by the CFTC. Um, you know, Predict It received its ability to run its markets by receiving a no-action letter uh, from the CFTC, which they give to research institutions to run such markets, but they cap trading at $850 per market. Uh, and now we've seen some crypto exchanges try to get around this, um, but the CFTC's investigation to polymarket should at least give a little bit of pause here. Um, but the CFTC's argument for why they don't allow trading on these markets is that political events are too unpredictable to be used for hedging purposes, and therefore individuals shouldn't be allowed to trade. They shouldn't be trusted to trade on them in large amounts. Uh, but we have evidence, whether it's from Predictit or from Super Forecasting or from Polymarket or, or any of these platforms, uh, that certain people are able to consistently make accurate forecasts within the realm of normal statistical uncertainty. Um, and because they can, do you not think that the CFTC should change its stance? Is that something that um, predict it you think should pursue, whether that's receiving full CFTC approval or seeking an increase in the trading limit? You know, it would help make markets more efficient. You know, if I'm limited by $850, I really have to make a lot of strategic plays in terms of when I want to deploy my capital, which would in part be alleviated if there was a larger cap. Um, so is that something that the company is interested in, or are you guys sort of happy with where you guys sit vis-a-vis -vis the CFTC and the no action letter? Uh, so that's a that's a really good question. It's not just for us, but also for regulators. So so we have a, um, the, the, the $850 position limit uh, is is as much intended uh, and functions as a consumer protection device as uh, as anything else. Now, there there are those that argue consumers don't need any protection, and you know, buyer beware. Well, that's I don't think a functioning market. I don't think you can have a functioning market if there aren't guardrails in terms of what's permitted and and what's not. So. I think it has served its purpose. It's not a priority for us. It, it just isn't because there are, this is a small dollar market with lots and lots and lots of traders. And when you allow an oligarch to come in and tilt a market, even if it's only on a temporary basis, um, there's, there are consequences to that. And at the very least are disclosure requirements. So uh, I think there's a balance that's gonna be found. I think the regulator, look, I mean, I think the regulators are actually looking for a, a, a logical way to regulate these event contract markets. I, I know that for a fact. And they're, they're gonna figure it out. And 
these events for these event markets to be ultimately widespread and successful and to continue to be accurate in terms of the forecasting and produce the kind of valuable data that they do. And the data itself is valuable. It's not just valuable for making money. It's valuable, as I used in the COVID example, because you want to know if you can know with some greater degree of certainty what is like, what is coming around the corner, either a good thing or a bad thing. That's valuable to consumers. It's valuable to people in a democracy not to be hoodwinked by inaccurate polls or spin meisters on TV. It's very, very valuable to have that information, at least as a counterbalance to all the, the other baloney that's thrown out there, uh, whether it comes to elections or other types of events. So I think there's going to be, I think these markets are going to evolve. I think they're going to evolve in a regulated fashion. That doesn't mean that, that they have to look just like the New York Stock Exchange. But event contract markets to be successful, I think um, they're going to have to, you know, there's going to have to be some self-regulatory guidelines and there's going to be some regulatory guidelines. And that's just, that's just the way of the world. These markets don't just happen without some transparency. They don't function well if there's not transparency. And there's manipulation if there's not transparency. Well, John, thank you so much for your wonderful and insightful answers on the Crowd Money Cast, and thank you for giving us so much of your very valuable time. For our listeners out there, if you guys are interested in starting to trade on Predictit, you guys can head over to predictit.org slash promo slash crowdmoney20 and get up to $20 reimbursed on your first day of trading. Um, John, thank you so much for joining us on the Crowd Money Cast. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope our listeners will as well. Thanks very much for having me on, Andrew and Clay.